Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Rachel Allen and today I'm delighted to be joined by Robert McFarlane, travel writer and author of Mountains of the Mind, The Wild Places and most recently The Old Ways. We talked about his experiences exploring the underground caves in Cast Country, featured in the latest issue of Granter, and his essay in Granter 119, Britain, where he tackles one of the most dangerous tidal stretches in the UK. We also discussed how landscape is retold through language, and the writers and poets who have experimented with representing the natural scene around them. We'll start with a reading from Robert and his essay in the magazine, Underland. I could not have known, when we entered the Underland, that it would have its own stone saint stood in her niche in the rift's curved roof, hundreds of feet into the earth. I only saw her as we returned, though she must have watched us pass on the inward journey, pushing deeper down the fissure with the stream cold at our shins, on towards the cascades, the dry silence of the lower chamber and the undivable sump. Her niche was a bright white dripstone, but she was picked out in mica that glittered blackly in my torch beam. Her arms were folded, her elbows sharply out, her garment flared, and her head was turned in profile to the left. There was something of the flamenco dancer to her, and something Marian also. She was nothing more or less remarkable than a speleothem, a mineral deposit transformed over thousands of years by chemical action in the limestone of the rift. But her presence there made sense to me, geology as theology, working to sculpt an elaborate effigy for that Baroque space. When you talk about the stone saint in Underland, you say that her presence is geology as theology. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this idea. Well, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, I went down into hell, as it were, into the underworld, and I found a saint there, and that in itself was a, was a surprise, uh, an, an, an out-of-place presence. Um, I didn't, of course, go into the underworld. I went down into a, a naturally formed limestone cave system under the Derbyshire Peak District, and there I found a naturally formed artefact which resembled a, a saint, a nothing more and nothing less than that. Um, but there, I think, is the interest. Um, we have always made belief out of material, out of the stuff of the world, and Buddhism and Taoism is, are obsessed with sacred mountains, in a British context, Callanish uh, on the Isle of Lewis, or Avebury, the Standing Stones of uh, the Marlborough, Wiltshire Downs. These are all places where human belief systems and the rocky stuff of the world coincide. Uh, so, and, and I've always been fascinated by that relationship between imagination and matter. And this was a, a, a weird little convergence of the two. It also, I suppose, when I travel in landscapes, I've found now that sometimes a, an event or a site or even an image, as it were, will be the kind of seed crystal that precipitates out understanding or a, 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 a way of seeing that place. And in this case, it was the saint because I realised that this elaborate limestone environment full of drips and cascades and frozen motion and turbulence was baroque, was... Catholic in that sense, and the saint made made perfect sense in that respect. And it's also about the leap of faith that people take when they go up high mountains or down deep chasms. Mm. 
and talking about the belief systems and the history that surrounds the landscapes and the places that you write about, how do you manage the entirety of, of, a, of a history and a belief system when, when you're coming across a place or when you're attempting to write about a place? Well, it, um, you don't, is the simple answer, because every place will always exceed your knowing of it, no matter how assiduous a researcher you are. And when you're dealing with uh, a geological context like like the Peak District or, or any, any place, um, its age exceeds your knowing, exceeds your comprehension. It, deep time is dizzying and vertiginous. So... Um, that said, there are certain landscapes where you need to be very careful of your history, um, places of atrocity, of dark pasts. Um, when one's writing about Scottish landscape today, you need to think very carefully about the 19th century clearances and 18th century histories that have led to its kind of emptying of people, for example. Um, uh, so it, it, I, I guess it's, um, it's a kind of learned sensitivity to what is astonishing and I'm not saying I always have that sensitivity but you need to be vigilant to what's astonishing what's you need to be particularly responsible about what to keep what to ignore what to forget because sometimes being ignorant or innocent is as revealing as being knowing and prepared I, I always find it managed very well in your in your writing and I suppose as well it's the idea of the changing landscape that you have to take into consideration. Is it the same approach? Do you, do you come at that in the same way? In the sense that landscapes are kind of volatile places. Mm, and mm, I, mm. Well, um, well that, I suppose that's, yes. Um, I'm fascinated by dynamism, by change, um, and by the way that landscapes are not, exactly as you, as you imply, they're not kind of wallpaper, they're not diorama, they're not static background that we move through. Actually, they're... They change the way we feel and the way we think and the way we behave second by second, instant by instant. And that that fascinates me. So from a writerly perspective, how do you write about flux? How do you write about flicker? How do you write about change the whole time? Light, you know, light is we feel light. We feel it as a temperature, we see it as a as a shadow play or a light play. Um we um it's an astonishing, transient, memorable and it has no interest in language, so the writer is faced with the problem of how to record these super linguistic phenomena. Um, and uh, I kind of won't tire of the puzzle, though I'll never crack it. Um, but the first thing you've got to do is break cliche, because cliche is always there for the majestic hills and the purple heather and the golden sunlight. Mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll never evoke, mm. I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. And the idea of remaining truthful to a landscape as well, when you're trying to replicate a feeling or a vision, yeah, does that ever concern you that you have to you have to try and replicate it in the in the absolute best way possible and remain true to how it makes you feel and and how it objectively is? Well, objectively is not not so much because we are all writing records of perception to some degree. Uh, the idea of a transcript of of of, of the material reality is 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 unthinkable because it doesn't exist linguistically so what a transcript will always distort however faithful it attempts to be so i'm interested in perception the record of perception and um the the, the, the flux of perception um but sometimes it feels like you do need to develop a new syntax or if not new language at least new structures so in an essay i wrote for granted britain about the broomway which was this uh, walking this um 
offshore tidal path with a sheen of water over it that was like a mirror, I realized that the, the trope, the visual trope of that place was the mirror, was the reflection. And, uh, and I tried to, to write a kind of palindromic or hinged language that turned back on itself and played mirror games. And again, in the, in the essay we're talking about now, Underland, there's a section where I suddenly realized that I was in a place with no straight lines. It was pure flow and turbulence, the rock eroded by the water, the water flowing at our very feet. There was n nothing rectilinear about it, and I wanted to try and write a, a language where words kind of morphed in and out of one another, and rift gave us riff, and, uh, and that sense of language itself as possessing flow and turbulence and emergent properties. Mm. Talking about perception of a landscape and, and truth, I wonder if you've if you're familiar with Elizabeth Bishop. Well, uh, yes, uh, I am, and she is you know, astonishing mm. on, on flicker, mm. as it were. I mean, mm. you, you've read her mm. a lot. It, it reminds me of her poem, The Map, uh, oh, yeah. when she is actually sort of focusing so intensely on a landscape, almost almost through a layer of protection. She's, it's like she attempts very much to be objective, while at the same time being completely aware that she can never be truthful to the landscape that she's trying to put across. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that always interests me, that idea of staying truthful to a landscape and truthful to your feelings within the landscape while attempting a universal experience of that yeah. place. Um, so it, it's quite a, a massive thing, I think, to attempt, and it, it interests me how writers sort of approach that. Well, yeah, I just, I'm not sure there is a baseline of... of uh, I mean, language is very bad at qualia, it's very bad at units of sensation and perception. That's not how it's built and not what it's really made to do. So you end up best guessing and approximating anyway uh, and I'm not sure that one is always working back to try and reconstruct that absolute sort of er moment of perception. I think once one accepts that there will be mutation and, um, and, and adaptation and that that mutation will become it, to some degree the subject of the writing as well, memory at work, uh, misprision and so on. Um, Bishop Marianne Moore, um, Evan Boland in her poem that the science of cartography mm -hmm. is limited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, these are great poets writing mm. about these questions of limit to knowledge and representation. Mm, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to talk uh, a little about the pieces that you have, um, both in the newest issue of Granter, Travel, and also in Granter, Britain. In both of those pieces, you place yourself in rather precarious and perhaps dangerous situations, one very much underground and one almost very much out at sea. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about the situations and, and how you felt when you were there and, and perhaps the comparisons between the two places. Well, uh, so one is, is walking this tidal path um, where you need to have confidence that the moon will hold its course and therefore the tide will, will keep to its hours and, and as long as it does then you have your, your allotted time to make it along this tidal path and back again before the sea re-floods the area. Um, which uh, it brings a peculiar reassurance along with a sense of danger because as long as, as, as nothing um, extra-orbital happens, you should be fine. Um, uh, uh, but of course walking out to sea is a very counterintuitive thing to do, even on, on, on shallow water. Um, but really it was nothing more than a walk along a beach, just, and a, just a beach that was quite a long way out to sea. <laughs> And the second, yes, uh, moves underground in the Peak District into this limestone system known as, well, part of it is known as Giant's Hole, connects up with other systems. Uh, and there again, I was half a mile offshore in the first essay here, 
perhaps 100 meters on, under the surface of the earth. But in both I found my way into other worlds um, and I've long been fascinated by how close at hand uh, the astonishing is and the undiscovered is and, and these weird sensational, in a deep sense of that word, uh, environments can be discovered just off the Essex coast or just under the Derbyshire fields. Um, and this wonderful phrase by an American writer called The Undiscovered Country of the Nearby, which I'm very too fond of quoting probably, but both of them are forays into that, that undiscovered country and, and attempts to find language to do justice to the strangeness mm. I found out there. Mm. And I suppose in treading these paths as well, you're following in the footsteps of travellers and travel writers before you. And I wonder if perhaps you could talk about the legacy of the travel writer and whether you think you're writing into or within a tradition. Yeah, well, um, well, Grant's been very involved in that. So we're, we're talking today about a, tra a travel issue out in 2013. There have been you know, absolutely crucial sort of way markers within British and American travel writing. Uh, in the 80s and 90s from special issues from Granter and you look back at them now and they are legendary names within the travel writing pantheon you've got O'Hanlon and Jonathan Rayburn and Bruce Chatwin and, um, uh, and it's extraordinary and to see these names and these essays uh, there. Um, actually I think what's interesting is how little has changed and um, travel writing is an incredibly durable form uh, it goes back as far as the epic of Gilgamesh it's about as old as literature <laughs> and like any durable form it it survives by changing its changing itself, but um, uh, and I guess what's happened is that the foreign is no longer available because the world has been mapped and seen and discovered. Um, there's a colonial, post-colonial sensitivity now at work. We we know that 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 old kind of late 19th, early 20th century vision of the travel writer going forth to discover knowledge and bring back the uh, epistemological equivalent of the spices from the bazaar will not do for all sorts of reasons and instead writers are playing with form, playing with language, playing with destination, treating place as deep rather than as wide. Distance doesn't need to be great to, as a precondition of discovery. Um, but actually Chatwin was doing that in the 70s and um, Colin Thubron has done it magnificently in the 80s. And play has always been part of travel writing, mm. stylistic play. Mm. Who did you read when you were younger? What inspired you to want to travel and write? <laughs> uh, well, a, a, an astonishing North American writer called Barry Lopez, who wrote a great book called Arctic Dreams, among many other great books, writer of dazzling grace and precision and lyricism. Um, Patrick Lee Fermer, British uh, Anglo-Irish travel writer who walked across Europe in the 1930s and then wrote about it 40 years later in classic travel books, um, who's as far from Lopez as could be. He's tendrilled and floridaceous and ornamented and gloriously kind of um, profuse um, and uh, female writers Virginia Woolf is a stunning writing, writer of walking in place Nan Shepherd up in the Cairngorms um, Edward Thomas the poet I was mm. kind of I, I, literature and landscape are the two things that have always preoccupied me and they weave in and out of one another um, in inextricable and fascinating ways mm. and I wonder perhaps if you could tell me a bit more about your, your new project um, uh, that the that the the piece in Granter is about. Yeah, so uh, this is really Granter is a wonderful place to explore um, uh, areas, subjects, books, and this is the first exploration of what will be, I think, over the next four or five years, uh, become a book called Underland, um, which is about subterranea, the worlds beneath our feet, the places we can't see and don't know, and 
imaginatively dispose of our dead and our debris and our dreams and to. Um, so I don't know quite yet where it will take me. Um, <laughs> I suspect uh, the storm drains of Toronto and the limestone caverns of Slovenia, um, probably the buried cities of Turkey and um, um, and the sewers of London, but uh, it's all going to depend on who I meet and um, and what happens along the way. Are you nervous? Uh, yes, I'm constitutionally <laughs> quite fond of light and space, um, but discovered while down in Giant's Hole uh, and that I that claustrophobia was not was not there. It was it was not a problem to be to pass through a feature called the Vice, which uh, I write about in there, which. You know, if I think if I had been um, uh, uh, instinctively claustrophobic, it probably would have told me then. Mm, mm, definitely. <laughs> so um, anyway, I'm excited and look forward to connecting up these weird worlds. Mm, it's, I think it's going to be a really interesting project. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Granter Podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granter, go to granter.com.